Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are producing this podcast, and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go! Welcome to The Familiar Strange. I am Jodie Lee Trimbach, your Familiar Stranger for today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia Pacific and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, brought to you today from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Annalisa Polizza. Professor of Technology Studies of Communication at the University of Bologna in Italy and visiting professor at the University of Twente in the Netherlands. Professor Polizza is the lead investigator on a project exploring migration into Europe, and more particularly looking at the way that digital infrastructures like massive databases used to collect information from migrants when they first arrive on European soil, how infrastructures like that actually help to shape these people into migrants basically constructing them as a different kind of person or a different category of person than perhaps they were before they arrived. Now, for those of you just joining us, this is the seventh in our series of interviews with STS scholars. STS stands for Science and Technology Studies, or sometimes Science, Technology and Society. Nobody really agrees on this, but what is definite about that kind of study is that it uses the intellectual tools of disciplines from the humanities and social sciences to pick apart and understand issues related to science and technology. Now, as Professor Politzer points out in this episode, to really do STS well, you have to be extremely committed to detail and to understanding minutiae from multiple perspectives. So in this current project she's working on, which is called Processing Citizenship, and I'll link to the website in the show notes, the team includes ethnographers from a number of disciplines, content experts who research migration and border control, as well as software developers and other ICT specialists. And as she points out, this can be both challenging and really rewarding. But so long as everyone is committed to the ultimate goals of the project, then they can each provide valuable insight into the phenomena at hand from the perspective of their own discipline or field. We talk about how migrants coming to Europe are used as what she calls a discursive apparatus. Now, putting that really simply, this basically means that their existence and their desire or need to enter Europe is employed as a strategic tool by politicians, by policymakers, the media, any other stakeholder to actually define what Europe is, what Europe means and what these different groups want Europe to be going forward. We talk about how databases have to somehow translate a person who is applying for asylum or applying for migrant status in Europe into a set of numbers readable by computers. So that can involve scanning various body parts, which then come to represent that person in the database, distilling their identity into a set of categories that the migrants themselves may not feel actually apply to them, and then codifying that data into numbers that can be read by other databases so that any given non-European person can be made legible to European systems, even when that legibility causes individuals to lose their cultural specificity. And we talk about what it means to craft a career, both inside and beyond academia, 
and how to use the skills that ethnography gives you to do so many fascinating things from documentary filmmaking to working in government agencies to applying for grants to do truly groundbreaking research on topics that really matter to you. Throughout the conversation, we always come back to what it means to be seriously committed to the study of technology and to truly understanding how the technical influences the social. So here it is, my conversation with Professor Annalisa Politzer about the migration crisis in Europe and the technologies and infrastructures enacting it. looking at migration and citizenship issues on a Europe-wide scale. So our listeners come from all over the world. Uh, so can you maybe start by giving us a brief overview of the kinds of issues and concerns that one might hear people talking on the street about migration issues in Europe at the moment, and also what kind of concerns are governments addressing? Well, migration issues right now in Europe are uh, a very hot topic. It's not news that they have been used in the last 15, 20 years as a way to steer public opinion into right-wing positions. So, first of all, migrants in Europe right now are a discursive apparatus. Oh, interesting <laughs> word. What does it mean to be a discursive apparatus? Well, they are mobilized as elements in a narration of invasion, losing cultural specificities, and therefore they, they first and foremost mobilize in a discursive way. And when you say discursive, you mean that because people are talking about it, it's it's creating a reality that may not even exist outside of what people are saying? And, and that's the second part of the word apparatus, mm. which has to do with artefacts that are actually mobilized, making things exist or making identities. So I come from a tradition in STS that uh, looks at any type of act or aggregate as something always fleeting, which is kept on by tools, by mm. artefacts. Mm -hmm. So for me, saying that something exists or doesn't exist doesn't make really much sense because discursive and material aspects are always entangled. So what I mean that migrants are apparatuses or are used as apparatuses it's not only individuals are mobilized uh, in discursive terms but there are, there are also infrastructures that create people as migrants. So not having access to uh, proper work or uh, being put in some infrastructures from which it's virtually impossible to get out creates individuals as migrants, as mm -hmm outsiders of society. Can you give me an example of the kinds of infrastructures that you're talking about? Yeah. Well, in my work, I focus uh, mainly on data infrastructures. So once you're put in a database uh, where um, the fact of having given your fingerprints to Ansk Asylum is um, integrated across different databases with other types of social functions, yeah. that will always put you in a position to be a migrant, to be an outsider of society. When you say um, that people put their fingerprints into a database, yeah. what does that mean in practical terms? What are people actually doing with their bodies in that process? I was uh, observing this just a few weeks ago in Greece. Mm -hmm. Basically, first people are called by the officer, uh, and there is usually one officer uh, registering, recording fingerprints after they have been uh, registered as far as personal data um, is concerned. So fingerprinting comes after. And there are lists, they are called, they come into this container. Their body parts to be fingerprinted are prepared, so fingers and palms are moisturized hmm. in order to be uh, suitable for the machine. And then it's a very fast process. It has become a very fast process. So their hands are put in different positions on the scanning machine, and then um, the um, registration officer checks whether 
the fingerprints are uh, of good quality and uploads them on um, national database. Mm. And then from there, from the national database, they are uploaded on the European databases. So what was striking for me during this experience observing this is that people, most people living after having their fingerprint, fingerprints recorded, they were saying thanks. They were saying thank you? Yeah. Wow. So for them it was, it was fascinating. It was kind of a service they were given and uh, they were very curious. They were all staring at the monitor. There was innate curiosity towards this interaction of their body with a machine. Mm. Hmm. <laughs> so let's paint the picture. Where are a lot of these people coming from and what's the space like that they're coming into? Well, it depends. Different countries have different countries of origin. So in Greece at the moment, I mean, there is a spatial and uh, temporal dimension. In Greece at the moment, they are mainly Syrians, but in the last month there has been an increase in Turkish people, which is quite revealing. And then Afghans and Iraqis. While in Italy they are more coming from sub-Saharan Africa, very often people who had lived for years, even 10 years, in uh, northern African countries like Libya, and they had jobs there, but with the destabilization of the area they were pushed to either to prison or to avoid it, to, to cross the sea. What I know from some NGOs is that people arriving in southern Italy sometimes they don't even know where they are because if they are stuck in Libya there is a desert and on the southern side there are kidnapping groups on the western side and other militia threats on the eastern side so the only way for them to go the only direction is taking the sea Mm. and sometimes they don't they're just rescued by uh, ships they don't they don't even know where they're brought so this mythology of the pull factor, saying that migrants are increasing their efforts to reach Europe because they know that there is um, a kind of uh, incentive in, or at least a welcoming attitude for them in Europe. It doesn't hold when they don't even know where they are arriving, mm. basically. Yeah. So let's talk a bit more about your current project. Your project at the moment is called Processing Citizenship, Digital Registration of Migrants as Co-Production of Citizens, Territory and Europe. So what does that mean? We talked about the fingerprinting. Mm -hmm. Is that what digital registration is about? No, digital registration is about, well, it's made of several steps. The first step is, well, at least in the case, that uh, the the last case that I observed, people were first recognized at the police station. Then they were brought to um, to the camp where they were formally registered. So registration is about uh, name, family name, family composition, reason for uh, living in their country, country of origin, of course. Yeah, this kind of administrative data. Mm -hmm. Then they are asked whether they want to apply for asylum. And that's an important, uh, say, deviation, because if they accept to apply or if they show the the willingness to apply for asylum, then they are introducing another uh, procedure, which is uh, asylum, the asylum procedure. In both cases, after this collection of personal data, they are fingerprinted. So at that point, they go in one direction and their fingerprints go in a different direction. What happens when those fingerprints get uploaded to a data... I mean, how can a fingerprint get uploaded to a database anyway? How does that even work? Oh, that's an, an interesting uh, aspect that I discovered. So fingerprints are collected as images, but there was a requirement posed by the European Parliament was to have them codified. So basically they're not stored as images, or at least after the, the second step, they're not stored as images anymore, but they are stored as mathematical strings. Really? Like yeah. equations? Yeah. There are algorithms translating them into numbers, and uh, that's to preserve privacy. 
Talk about the digital self. Yeah, it has to do with the fact that anybody can read a print or can read an image, while not anybody can read uh, an algorithmically coded string of numbers, Yeah, which translated the fingerprint. And does that also make that image or that fingerprint legible to computers? Definitely. Yeah. So what does a computer then do with that string of code? Well, it checks it against other databases. Right, to see whether or not these people are terrorists. Is that what that's about? Oh, well, first of all, to see whether or not people have asked for asylum in other countries. So the, the first system that where fingerprints are uploaded is Eurodac, which is the European database for asylum seekers that was established to implement the Dublin Convention and therefore the, the Schengen Treaty, which means that asylum seekers are requested to apply for asylum in the first country where they land, and uh, they cannot apply for asylum in other European countries. So the first check is against the possible applications in other countries. So if other countries already filed an application from that person, those persons are sent to the other country where they filed their request first. The translation process of taking something that is actually a body part and then turning that into an image and then turning that image into a piece of code and then breaking that code up to go and compare it against databases. That translation process seems to me to be turning a person into a set of numbers. How does that affect the way that immigration officers in that kind of context view people? Are they interacting with the people or are they interacting with the code that the person is going to become? There are different attitudes, I say. Not everybody has the same attitude. Mm. And of course, also being there as a researcher changes the attitude of officers. Ah, so you reckon you're, you're experiencing the observer effect? Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Um, so what we, uh, me and my collaborator we witnessed was kind of a relaxed atmosphere. I was quite surprised by that. Mm. So, for example, I was looking for my colleague. Uh, she was in to the container where fingerprints were taken, and I didn't know. Uh, so I was looking for her, and there were some applicants, some migrants, who realized that and opened the door of the container for me and told me, yeah, get, get into that, don't worry, get into that. So it was actually the, the applicants who felt uh, somehow legitimized to behave in a rather light way in a context that for me was quite heavy. Yeah. Uh, so I was very careful in uh, not interfering as much as possible in any process. It's different in other camps, I know that. It depends a lot on who is there in terms of officers mm. and how much cross-control they can, they can exercise on each other. You mentioned your collaborator. On this project, I see that you have quite an interdisciplinary team. So you're working with sociologists, ethnographers, software developers, and policy analysts. So has that been useful, having those multiple perspectives? Are there tensions because of the different ways of looking at the world? Oh, well, it depends on useful for what. Right. I mean, to achieve the, the project goals is challenging, but it's useful. Especially, I must say that I'm very happy the way that we have one software de developer right now, and he immediately caught the point of this research which is about looking at long-term consequences of these data infrastructures. So as any infrastructure they don't really work for today but they have much longer term implications and my hypothesis is that these longer term implications are constituting new understandings of what I call the order of governance mm. uh, which is made by the state, by a transnational institution
institutions like European Commission, by also private actors like contractors. So these data infrastructures are uh, basically redesigning, de facto redesigning in an invisible way, what we think is the, the form of the state. And for example, I was amazed by how this point was immediately clear to the software developer. And of course, you need a good uh, level of detail. This is a very STS mm. <laughs> uh, thing that you have to go into the minutiae of infrastructures mm. uh, to understand how these small changes trigger much broader transformations in the order of authority. So competencies are different, but at the same time, you look at similar phenomena from different perspectives, and in the end, the idea is to bring this perspective together in a more holistic understanding of what's going on. Would you have tips for other ethnographers who are also working with multidisciplinary teams? Oh, well, the very first thing is asking about expectations. And in our research field, it's not like in the hard sciences where there are teams of people who are led by a principal investigator and they have their own clear tasks. In social sciences and humanities, we are more keen to say, okay, this is my idea, this is my work, etc. I try to be very clear since the beginning what were the tasks of the project. And at the same time, I always told them, you know, uh, this is what the, the core project is about, but whatever comes out of it and you want to further that, you can. Mm. What do you think will be the the outcomes, or what do you hope will be the outcomes of this project? Well, that's a good question. It's a five-year-long project, so uh, we are just at the end of the first year. One thing would be to figure out how individual migrants are differently enacted in different European systems, mm -hmm. which is what is usually referred to as a semantic interoperability. Oh, goodness, we're going to have to unpack that. Uh, so uh, databases, uh, one of the big mantra of our times is to make databases interoperable, especially in government. Interoperable, meaning they can work together? Together, yeah. Okay. They can exchange information, they can cross-check information. At the same time, this interoperability has different dimensions. Uh, that for me, they are all quite entangled, but what computer scientists call semantic interoperability refers to the fact of using the same categories or at least comparable categories with com comparable values. And so if we want to adopt a phenomenological perspective, cutting the word in similar ways in the different databases in a way that they can communicate. So for example, one important category that is collected during the registration process is the tribal affiliation. And then in the Greek system, at least, there were dozens of values, so possible answers right. in that sense. So values are, uh, say in statistical terms, of possibilities to answer one question about uh, nationality. So if you talk about nationality, you can be Australian, you can be from uh, Mali, or you can be from Afghanistan. Okay, so th these are the values that I'm referring to. But I mean, some of these values, of course, are contested, especially when it comes to language, when it comes to tribal affiliation. Yeah. I mean, does everybody that comes through affiliate with a specific tribe? Yeah, the, the point is, what do we mean with tribe and what yeah. do they mean with tribe? And yeah. of course, that, that's the problem of interoperability. And that's right. uh, my point that these systems, uh, which are, I say that they are translating unknown persons into European readable identities. So they have to make sense of what other cultures would call in very different ways in European terms. And this is a really tough work of translation. Uh, when I talk about translation, I'm not talking about linguistic translation. I really 
talking about cultural. And in STS term, we would also say geometrical translation. But <laughs> Geometrical, so like making things fit into the same shape. Yeah, or having similar positions in a network. So I guess we talk about cookie-cutter versions of people and then other people who don't fit the mould. Absolutely. So this is kind of the database version of not fitting the mould, but yeah. being forced yeah. into the cookie-cutter yeah. shape. Uh, there are also um, acts of resistance to that. Oh, yeah? In yeah, what definitely. Uh, there, are, there, there are periods when saying that you, you are gay is, <laughs> seems to be the best solution to, to be put in a vulnerable category. Uh, other times that minors pretend to be adults and adults pretend to be minors. Uh, so, of course, there are strategies of resistance there, which uh, for me uh, are really ways of claiming a kind of uh, European citizenship. I'm not interested in whether this is true or not. I'm not interested in whether an applicant is really gay or not. But by saying that you're gay and therefore implying that uh, you deserve protection because of that, you're also projecting an ideal image of Europe, which is a polity that should protect minorities. So it seems like Europe is being created as this imaginary place that has particular values. Where do people get the idea that... Europe has those values. It's not so strange if you think at the impact of colonialism and then discourse about post-colonialism in non-European countries. Europe has always, uh, after World War II at least, has prompted these ideas of democracy, of inclusivity, uh, which are absolutely to defend. And at the same time, it has also been a colonial power in the past. So uh, these values are prompted with the power of uh, former colonial authorities and not in, in a vacuum. So I don't find much surprising that people are also exposed to European media are reusing these categories and these values for something that they want to achieve. So uh, apart from the fact that it might be true or not, the fact is that um, they are recognized as values that because of also um, a colonial heritage. But that's fascinating because, you know, there are so many countries in Europe. Would you say that there are shared European values that are enacted in the same ways in each country? Hmm. What I saw talking with migrants is that no, and uh, they are more exposed to uh, the values and cultures of countries that were colonial powers in their country of origin. So people from uh, South Sudan, they uh, spoke English, they wanted uh, at any coast to reach UK. And then one of these uh, guy had to stop in the Netherlands. He couldn't speak the language, but he was a water engineer, and you can imagine that a water engineer in the Netherlands might find good uh, job opportunities. So he he was starting to integrate when I met him first time. But of course, language was a barrier for him. Migrants, they don't necessarily look at Europe as a unity, but they are first and foremost exposed to the culture of the colonial power that was in their country. to talking about your previous work before Mm -hmm. this project. So you've done work as an ethnographer in government and Mm -hmm. also I think in engineering firms, is that right? It was a governmental engineering firm. Oh, so it was actually that that was... They're called in-house companies. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, so they're basically made of... mm, 
non-civil servants because we didn't have the status of civil servants. We were yeah, employees, but with a technical background. So right. working as a spin-off of the government, an agency. And working on government projects. Yeah, definitely. Right, okay. So what does an ethnographer do in that kind of space? On oh, a that's practical level. <laughs> Well, I was initially hired as an expert in user experience, so how to make government online services more um, closer and more usable for end users. And then after six months, the CIO realized that in order to do that, you have to push the user perspective into the project management. So my role was changed into project manager. So from that perspective, I was able to design the process of software development from a holistic point of view. So taking into account the perspective of end users. End um, users being people like uh, me when I'm using uh, my computer. Not necessarily. I, oh. I'm coming back to that in a second. Okay. Organizationally, that was interesting that if you are there as a, a user experience expert, then nobody really takes care of users and you have to be put in charge of the project to keep into account user perspectives since the beginning of the design. Mm. Well, when it comes to government projects, there is never actually a beginning then, because usually software is reused. There are what we call path dependencies. So there is already some software in place and there are already databases. I cannot really change a database from day to night. Yeah. Half of the work was identifying who users were supposed to be. And in the case of government, they are not simply citizens. This was one of my uh, the, the points I tried to push. Because when you talk about citizens, then you can... Uh, it's such an immaterial act, or you can use it in all the discursive ways that you want. So you can justify almost everything by appealing to citizens. So uh, I tried to disentangle, to open up this uh, black box of users and citizens in a more empirical way. All these epistemic struggles and tensions uh, were super interesting for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how I um, recovered a career in, in academia by um, at least writing a project about this kind of epistemic tensions in, uh, in the civil sector. Mm-hmm. What I always find striking is that basically government nowadays is considered the organization less likely uh, or less competent to deal with uh, IT and data infrastructure, etc. But this is a paradox because the nation state, as many studies in history of technology have shown, the, uh, the nation state was created in the 17th century as a way to handle data about population and about space hmm. and about property. Making people legible yeah. to the state. Exactly. Right. So the state is actually a machine that at least was constructed as a machine to deal with uh, data flows. And then also the internet was a nation-state-led initiative, ARPANET. Really? Yeah. Huh, I didn't know that. And the paradox is that today the state is considered to be yeah, the, the less skilled uh, organization able to deal with that. So how did it happen? Mm. So one of my interests in research is showing how software development again, focusing on the minute aspects of software development, can bring with it some closure uh, that are um, not readable, not because you don't have technical knowledge, but because they were developed in a way that only those who developed them were able to, to put their hands on subsequent versions of the software. Right. 
Right. So I was working for an engineering company, and so all my colleagues were engineers. And some software, which was also open uh, open source software, they couldn't work on it because it was poorly documented. Mm. It's not that they didn't have uh, the, the technical knowledge. But so, some of the, the aspects of the actual software were hidden within the software. They couldn't be yeah. re-emerged yeah. once it was yeah. once those original makers weren't yeah. there to ask questions yeah. of. So the this distinction between uh, let's say legal and technical knowledge, which is very strong in a government apparatus. It's really a rhetorical distinction that, uh, that has been very useful in prompting this discourse of inadequacy of mm. the government. So, so talk me through a typical day as an ethnographer looking at the kind of tensions between different professional groups in a space like that. Like what does a day look like of observing? Oh, well, first you have to answer a lot of phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> so much like being an academic. <laughs> emails Even more well. emails. Even more. <laughs> right, good. <laughs> Uh, taking part in a, a lot of meetings. After a while, you're allowed to design your uh, own research and ask questions or uh, conducting observation uh, intersections of the normal teens. So, for example, we also gave some training to local civil servants from town councils. And so when they came for having training, I conducted observation and interviews with them. Mm. Sometimes it was about explaining decision makers in the organization about uh, the end users. You end up being kind of a translator between yeah. the different groups. Yeah. yeah. You, you said that you recovered a, an academic career through that so by being a translator between those different groups you were also sort of inadvertently gathering data that could then become something that you could write up yeah at least I was developing research questions Mm. I mean data I couldn't really um, collect them but I knew where to look them yeah (laughs) almost like a pilot study that you get paid to do (laughs) that's that's the kind of pilot study you want to (laughs) do yeah from from an anthropological perspective that was quite interesting because I was conducting them during the day and then in evening I was developing this reflexive attitude towards what I did during the day Mm. and for me that was yeah the only way to recover an academic career because of the big fracture that you have after your PhD. I was quite skeptical of continuing academic career under the conditions that I was proposed after my PhD so I knew that I couldn't fit to it so I was already working for government and I thought that uh, developing some expertise in uh, this kind of governmental industrial environment was good for me if I were able to this reflexive attitude. And that's what enabled me to write my research project that was subsequently funded by the European Commission. Can I ask about that? Yeah. The uh, Applying for a European Research Commission grant, were you already working for the university that you work for in no. the Netherlands at that point? No. So how did you, how does that work? I have never mm. thought about that. The first project was a Marie Curie project. So they are individual grants for uh, researchers put at the beginning of their career or at the later stage. And they are mobility grants. So if you get one, which is usually quite difficult, if you get one, so you have to bring it somewhere in Europe or outside Europe. I mean, there are different types of Marie Curie grants. But outside your own home country? Yeah, right. absolutely. Okay. So that's why I knew uh, some work in between 
uh, information technologies and governance was conducted at the University of Twente in the Netherlands. And I didn't know the prospective colleagues personally, but I knew about their work and I thought, okay, it would be great if I could join them. Mm. So uh, that's how I wrote my project. Yeah, cool. So that's a very cool way of kind of crafting a career. Would you say that, that you, you intentionally craft your career or is it more opportunities rise and then you think that could work? No, it was very intentional. Hmm. I'm part of a generation that has to be intentional. <laughs> I don't know how it is right now in Australia, but at least, uh, well, definitely in Italy. <laughs> and I would say in Europe uh, more generally. I mean, I, I was rather naive. I mean, if I compare myself to students that I come to to know now sometimes i was listening today at a presentation there are students who even design when to defend their thesis their master or their phd thesis in order to be in the window to apply for positions i was not so smart at that level but i knew that i wanted to recover a career as an academic as a researcher even more than an academic but I didn't have much opportunity. So the institution I wrote my PhD thesis for, uh, I worked with during my PhD period, it was closed down in, in 2008. So when I defended my, my thesis because of the crisis. So I was quite entrepreneurial in, okay, taking my time. I decided to quit academia for a while because the conditions that I was given were not my cup of tea making some other experiences and if possible coming back to academia then after three four years of work outside academia I realized that I really needed to have intellectual dimension in my daily life in my daily work so that's how I managed to write my first uh, application Hmm. and unfortunately it was not founded it was the second one not to be founded in, in the reserve list so it took me a few months to recover, and after one year I tried again, and that was founded. Yeah. So the very f- f- important thing was to not to lose confidence mm. in your ideas. Mm. Uh, and that w- will be, I mean, I realized uh, you will be always asked about that, uh, having confidence in your ideas in, an, uh, <laughs> in a research path. Right. So it's good that you start since the very beginning. <laughs> <laughs> try and keep that in mind. <laughs> So you've also, in addition to your corporate work or government work and also your work in universities, you've also done work in creative pursuits as well. Can you tell me a bit about documentary making as an ethnographer? Well, uh, (laughs) I should specify that I was involved in two kinds of video making in the context of political activist initiative in early 2000s that was called Telestreet. The idea was to give tools for self representation to everybody and in a a couple of years we had 200 of these uh, micro broadcasters across Italy we uh, had a 24-hour broadcasting which required us to uh, exchange videos by internet so we integrated broadcasting technology with early internet sharing services Uh, just to say YouTube was not there at the time not yet so it was quite experimental and we won also several prizes while in Italy we were considered pirates but <laughs> <laughs> and so some of us including me we also developed a more artistic direction of experimentation 
And so I might say that the audience was different in the two cases. So where it was more artistic, the audience was quite clear. Art festivals like uh, Ars Electronica, Transmediale, and, and so on. And there was always, uh, we were experimenting with interactivity also in that case. So the public, uh, the, 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 the audience could interact with, with us uh, during our performances. While in, a, let's say, a standard broadcasting, of the daily broadcasting, the idea was to involve dwellers in representations of their own uh, living environment. Hmm. So it was definitely against the broadcast model of, okay, I present something and, uh, to you and you tell me what you think about it. But I learned to, be, to become invisible in living where uh, neighbors to use the technologies to represent themselves. Or if they ask us to, to shoot them, then we could do that. But it was more of an interactive relationship than me there uh, doing my, my work and then broadcasting it. Mm. Invisibility seems like a pretty handy skill to have learned if you're going to have a career as an ethnographer. (laughs) I think that's actually an excellent note to end on. I mean, what an incredible career you've crafted for yourself and that you're having. It's fascinating. (laughs) I don't even know when it's a career. It's a life trajectory. Let's put that away. It's a life. We (laughs) could just say that. That's awesome. Thank you so much for your time. it me and professor Annalisa Polizzo. Today's episode was produced by me Jodie Trembath with help from the other familiar strangers Simon Theobald, Julia Brown and Kylie Wong-Dolan. Our executive producers are Deanna Caddo and Matthew Fung. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show and it helps us make the show better. And if you'd like to support us and we'd love it if you would, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash the familiar strange, not the strange familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes for this episode, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. And if you have any questions or thoughts about the episode or any of the topics raised, why not come join the conversation in our Facebook group? Just search for The Familiar Strange Chats. Have you been over to the website recently? Our most recent post on the blog is from guest contributor Dr. Yasmin Mushabash discussing the arguments against climbing Uluru, also against judging those who have climbed Uluru. It's a really interesting piece, you should check it out. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at the familiar strange or tweet at TFS tweets or look us up on Facebook or Instagram. Our music's by Pete Dabro. Special thanks today to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks and until next time, Keep talking strange.